Hey, to start off, let's read the text, Genesis chapter two, verse four. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared in the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man or Adam in Hebrew or Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now skip down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, birds in the sky, wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, which is a great movie from the 90s, You don't think that was funny, okay. Um, He took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So, my wife and I got married really young. We were in college, she was 19, I was 21 years old, barely. Her parents wanted me to be 21, so we got married the first Saturday after my 21st birthday which says a lot about my personality, if you know me, and mostly not good stuff. So we got married, head over heels in love. I mean, with Tammy, it was literally love at first sight. I remember that, she's in the back. Not that it's anything's changed, my love, but it was literally, I mean, seriously, the first night, I remember it crystal clear, September 16th, 1998, after church at a park, late at night, there she was. I did not sleep that night or the next or the next. It was crazy. Within a few weeks, I said, I want to marry that girl. And here we are, 12 years in, you're stuck with me. So it was love at first sight and it was crazy, but not long into the marriage, we started to figure out what should have been obvious, and that is that we are different. And by different, I mean very different. So if you know me, I am introverted, type A, um, kind of high-strung. My wife, on the other hand, is uber social, laid back, phlegmatic, go with the flow. And not long into the marriage, we started driving each other crazy. I remember about six months in, we were driving in the car on a Saturday running errands, and in between, the radio was on, in between songs was an advertisement for this crazy new thing called eHarmony.com. Online dating, we thought this will never, ever work. It'll never make it. So, and we're there, and I forget the guy's name, but the doctor, PhD, spokesman, expert guy, his punchline was opposites attract and then attack. (laughs) I just thought, that's awesome. Thank you for (laughs) 
telling us that after we're married. So we turned off the radio and there was an awkward silence. And not, not long after that, um, I started having second thoughts because my feelings that were electric at first started to fade. I remember early on, I would walk into the room and, and if on accident my hand were to brush up against the backside of her hand, my entire arm would light on fire. Right? It doesn't do that anymore. I'm just saying, don't judge me. But now it's more like, ah, I'm sweaty, come on, you know? And so after a while, and that scared me to death. I'm an idealist, which is dangerous in particular for marriage. And I wanted my life and my marriage in particular to be spectacular, but it was fast becoming ordinary. Not bad, but ordinary. And so I started having second thoughts. Did we make a mistake? I mean, everybody was telling us when we were engaged, you're too young, you have no idea what you're getting into. I remember one guy said, you don't even become psychologically self-aware until 22. And then about a year after we got married, I realized, holy cow, he was right. What were we thinking? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and we started to wonder, I mean, did we make a mistake? Are we right for each other? Are we wrong for each other? And I started to have basically a crisis of faith. But in hindsight, which is 2020, I now see that my crisis of faith was based on a faulty, off-kilter, messed up view. <laughs> That's awesome, I just, is it, am I really that bad? That's just <laughs> fantastic, I guess I'm not getting invited back. That's one way to say it. Uh, my, 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 I'm just gonna keep going, is that okay? Just going in the dark, you're not missing anything up here anyway. So my, basically, my entire paradigm for marriage and what marriage is was seriously off. My marriage was fine. If anything, it was great. 90 plus percent of the problem was in my head. In short, I had no idea what marriage is for. And I was not alone. In fact, I would argue that the vast majority of us, at least in America, have a pretty good idea of what marriage is, right? It's a man, it's a woman, and a lifelong covenant until death do us part. But a ton of us are clueless about what marriage is for. Or put another way, what's the point of marriage? What's the meaning or the purpose behind it all? In a world, in a day and an age, when one third of first marriages end in divorce, and four or five out of 10, about 40 or 50% of all marriages end in divorce, why would anybody take that risk? I mean, that's insane. Somebody over here is getting married soon? You guys? Fantastic. So here's a great night, date night conversation for this coming week. 50-50, those are your odds. <laughs> the odds of your marriage making it past a few short years, so take a coin on your date, you know, quarter, throw it up, call heads or tails, slap it down, those are the odds. Now, of course, you're followers of Jesus, and in the words of Han Solo, never tell me the odds, right? <laughs> so you're gonna be just fine. But seriously, that is insane. 40, 50%? Why would anybody, less, much less, well over 90% of us in the United States, take that kind of a risk? That, and I think, is a valid and legitimate question. And that's where Genesis comes in. At the end of Genesis chapter two, we read this intriguing line in verse 24, and it's this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now in Hebrew, this line right here is an interpolation in the original language. If you're reading it, in particular if you're reading it in Hebrew, the storyteller is, man, now I'm just like, <laughs> it's just no good. 
Should I just keep rocking up here? Should I only stand down there? Oh, oh, that's right. If, if only I could dance, this could be awesome. This is officially a first for me. This is fantastic. If I, if I was Hispanic, I'd start dancing, you know? Well, I'm just going to keep rocking, so that's fantastic. Um, the storyteller is, pay attention and don't laugh, all right, unless you're supposed to laugh. The storyteller is doing his thing about Adam, about Eve, about the Garden of Eden, and then all of a sudden there's a break in the storytelling, and it's as if this voice cuts into it. It's as if God's himself, God's voice, cuts into it and says, listen, that is why, pause, hold up, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. Um, this is God's way of saying, listen up, pay attention. This marriage right here is a template. It's, it's a paradigm. It's not a one-off. It's, it's a template for every single marriage ever since all around the world to pour itself into. I mean, think about it, that line. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. Did Adam have a mom or a dad? No, and is united to his wife. Eve didn't have any other options. But it's written in such a way as to make you and I, the reader, slow down and take notice. Oh my goodness, God is saying something that we need to get right here. And the key line is, quote, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, which raises the question, what is why? What is, wait, wait a minute, I missed it. What is why a man leaves his father and mother? That line can be translated, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, which raises the question, for what reason? Okay, wait, I'm missing it, for what reason? And to get at that, you have to rewind to the story before the story. As I see it in the Genesis story, in Genesis 1 and 2, there are four reasons God created marriage and thought it all up in the beginning. All four are answers to the question why, and keep in mind, this is worldview stuff. So as followers of Jesus, we believe that marriage is a created thing. It did not evolve and evolve evolve and come to prominence around the you know, Byzantine era as a way to deal with civic litigation. It was embedded in human society from the beginning. That's why every culture on the planet has basically a version of marriage from Papua New Guinea all the way to New York City. Every culture on the planet, it's a part of creation, not just of culture. It was made by God, not just by man. Of course, we color it with our own culture and our day and our age and the way we're wired, but there's something in this that was set up by God. And there are four reasons that I see God thought it all up. Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, write this down. If not, sit there and feel guilty. Um, I'm kind of kidding. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Interesting line, Genesis 1 and 2, as you know, are written in semi-poetic language, and the refrain all the way through is God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. But then we get to Adam, and God says, it is not good. There's this dissonant minor chord. It is not good for the man to be alone. Why not? Well, short answer is because as human beings, we are made in God's image and likeness, end quote. That means we are called to image God, to mirror and mimic what God is like to the world. But that's a problem for Adam because God exists in a web of life-giving relationships. Earlier in the story, in chapter one, we read this line from God, let us make mankind in our own image. 
Who is God talking to? We don't know for sure, but we think God is talking to himself. Later, we learn from Rabbi Jesus that God exists in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All we know right here at this point in the story is that not only is God relational by nature, but God is not alone. Now, I cannot tell you how often I hear people say, all you need is God, right? That is a well-worn cliche in the church, in particular to single people. All of you single people, my guess is you hate it. All you need is God, shut up, right? I hear that all the time. The problem is it's not true. It sounds really nice in a song lyric, but it's not true. God never says, hey, all you need is me. Adam is in the Garden of Eden with God himself in a world with no sin and no injustice and no pain and no death. And God says it's not good for the man to be alone. Now that doesn't mean you have to get married. There are other ways to live in community. Jesus was single for followers of Jesus. Singleness is not only a valid way of life, if anything, it is a higher way of life, but single or married, we were created for community. And what better way to do that than in marriage? There's a line in the Hebrew wisdom literature in what we call Proverbs that says a man or a woman's spouse is their a loop is the word used in Hebrew. It can be translated companion or best friend. And your spouse is just that, your closest friend. In fact, that's one of the reasons that God created marriage. Before you to live not alone, for you to walk through life with somebody, with your spouse as the primary relationship, not secondary after work or your job or Tuesday night at the pub with the guys, but with your spouse as the primary relationship in your life, the one who knows you better than anybody, better than your own mother. My wife, Tammy, knows everything about me. She knows my laundry list of character defects, and trust me, it's about 83 pages long and she still loves me, honest to God. She still, most of the time, loves me. She still wants to spend time with me. She still wants to go on a date with me every Thursday night. She still wants to spend her day off with me and go to coffee and go for a walk in the park. She still, she knows me, and in spite of me, she still loves me. This is one of my favorite things about my wife and about marriage, hands down. She is my friend, she is my best friend. There is nothing like waking up in the morning next to Tammy, she's more of a morning person than I am, so she's usually already awake, but sometimes she's still there. And knowing that not only is she in my corner, but she's my friend and I am not alone. Now, secondly, if you're taking notes, um, this next one's a metaphor, don't take it literally, but secondly is gardening. Don't take that literally, I, dis I detest gardening in real life. But here's where I get that. In verse 15, we read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, listen to this, to work it and take care of it. But if you know the story, the garden of Eden is gigantic. Don't picture a park, picture a wild, untamed national forest. Who knows how large it is? It's way too much work for one man. Adam needs help to do what God's called him to do. And that's why God not only created Eve, but why God created marriage. In 18, we read, it's not good for the man to be alone. And the next line is, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper is azer in Hebrew. It sounds a little bit derogatory in English, honestly, kind of like God made Adam a personal assistant. 
But it's not that way, you can calm down, it's not that way at all in the original language. It can be translated partner. It means, more literally, one who comes alongside to help achieve a goal. The exact same word is used for God all over the Psalms. We read Yahweh, or the Lord, is my azer, or helper. In other places in the Hebrew scriptures, it's used of military reinforcements without which an army would be crushed. So a helper is not an employee, somebody you boss around, it's an equal. That word used in Genesis is suitable, a helper suitable to him, meaning on the same level or of the exact same kind. It's someone you love and you respect with equal who comes alongside as a partner in a project, as an ally in a war, and it's all for the sake of, quote unquote, gardening. I would argue that everybody, male or female, needs a gardening project. Put another way, everybody needs a calling in life, a sense of, this is what I was made for, this is what I was set up to do, this is what I was put on earth for, this is my corner of the garden to rule over. And you need to be able to answer that question, what is my calling, what is my gardening project, before you get married ideally, or at least in time, or your marriage in time will come off the wheels. And here's why. I would put it this way. All healthy marriages are built around a calling. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, in time it will collapse in on itself. If the point of your relationship is your relationship, we're going to read this book and memorize this thing and go to this conference and go on a date night, everything, and work out together, and blah, 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 and then we're going to have a great relationship. But if that is the point, if, that is the, if the end goal of your relationship is your relationship, in time, it will self-destruct. You can only sit at a coffee shop and stare into each other's eyes for so long. At some point, you were wired, I think, by God to get up and do something. Now, I know this raises as many questions as it does answers. What if you're not sure about your calling? What if your calling changes over the years? What if your spouse's calling is out of sync with your own? What if you're already married and you're thinking it's too late? I don't have time to get into all of that tonight. Email Jose. But <laughs> my point for right now, what I'm trying to say is that marriage is a means to an end, and you need to get that. Marriage is a means to an end. It exists for something larger than itself, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, and early in the story, what right here we think of as the Garden of Eden. So, sisters, at the risk of sounding old school, don't marry a man without a gardening project. No matter how charming or romantic or spontaneous or creative or fun or laid back he is, if his life is not more about more than his life or his career or the bottom line, how in the world would the two of you partner together for God's calling on your shared life? And brothers, at the risk of sounding chauvinistic, don't marry a woman who doesn't want to be your azer or your helper in life. If not, how in the world will you together go make the world that God's calling you into? If you ignore this and you get into marriage with no sense of calling, it's only a matter of time until you start thinking, I'm bored. Is there somebody more interesting? Is there something more interesting? 
Should I shove my time and my effort and my energy not into my marriage, but into my job or into my body or into my girlfriends or into my whatever? You fill in the blank. It's implanted into your humanness. That's one of the reasons that God created marriage, one of the main reasons. There was a garden. It was wild. It was untamed. It was way too much work for one man. And so God thought up this crazy idea called marriage. And none of that, who knows how many thousands of years later, none of that has changed at all. God shaped marriage for you, hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, to partner with another human being and go make a world. Now third, moving on at a little bit of a faster clip. Third is sexuality. You with me? You alive out there? If not, we'll talk about sex and that'll bring you all back in. So the last line in the story is Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Two young, amorous, naked people in a garden. It sounds like reality TV gone bad. But it's actually the first love story in the scriptures. They were friends, yes. They were also partners, yes. But more than any of that, they were also lovers. So this is, you know, common knowledge and obvious, but God created your body. God created all of your body. Not one part of it is by accident. I doubt God saw Adam and Eve messing around in the garden and thought, what the heck? That's not what those are for. (gasps) You know? No, I don't mean to sound crass. Sorry, Jose, but I'm already not getting invited back with the lights. So um, I, I doubt that was the case, right? No, God created your sexuality as a part of your humanity. When God was done, he said, it is very good. All of you, including your sexuality. This is before sin. We were sexual before we were sinful. God made all of this, and God, listen, created marriage as the venue or the context of the place for you to express and enjoy your sexuality for a long time. And the reciprocal is also true. God created your sexuality as the glue, as the bonding agent to keep your marriage healthy and in tune and at one for a long, long time. Now, your desire for sex isn't like your need for food or drink. You don't have to get married and have sex in order to live a happy life. Jesus was single. So was Paul, the leading author, by far the most prolific in the New Testament. But if you want to get married to have sex, that's not bad or shallow or selfish, as long as not the only reason you want to get married. Because sex is one of the reasons God created marriage. And then lastly is family. Early on in the story in chapter 1, God said, be fruitful and increase, if you look at chapter 1, verse 26 or 28, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Did you know that's actually the first command in all of the Bible? I love it when people, next time somebody says, yeah, the Bible is a bunch of rules and regulations, say, yes, it is. And the first rule is get married and have sex. How do you like that? So I'm into this Bible thing from the very first page, right? You have me, I'm in. This God that we read about in Genesis and all the way through is a God who's really into the family. In Genesis, family is the building block of society as a whole. All through the scriptures, God is called father. We are called sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters. Families at the heart of God's vision for the world. There's no doubt in my mind. That's one of the many reasons that the family is under a, not to sound weird and churchy, but a demonic assault 
in culture at large. This is at the heart of God's vision for human flourishing. And just like marriage, family is about way more than family. If we're going to fill the earth and subdue it, that's going to take more than one couple, more than one family. That's going to take all of the human race, all of us. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to get married or that all married couples need to have kids. Some can't. And there are other ways to live into that calling. But that does mean that family is one of the reasons God created marriage. So there you have it. That's the why or the reasons or the meaning and the purpose behind marriage. Why you walk down the aisle, the reason you say until death do us part. Friendship, gardening, sexuality, and family. There's just one little bitty issue. We don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore, right? The closing line in that story is Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. If only that was the ending of the Bible. If only the Bible was more of a pamphlet than a library, right? If only that it was beautiful and it was short lived, say the least. And the next story, if you know it, we read about sin, Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion against God. And this is what's intriguing to me. The first place that sin wreaks havoc is in the marriage relationship. We read, if you skip down to chapter three, verse 11, God says this, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, I love it, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Nice, so not only does he sound like a six-year-old, but he blames his wife And he blames God, the woman that you gave me. Notice the bitterness against God. And the first sitcom marriage is born. Two people at each other's throats, blame shifting, anger, acrimony, bitterness, pride. It's all right here. Now here we are, who knows how many thousands of years later, I have no clue. But we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. I know that much for sure. And we're all born with the exact same bent. We don't live in the garden anymore. In the language, was it Faulkner who said east of Eden? Right? We, that's where we live. Now, the good news or the gospel, which we as a family of churches, which you, which Jose are passionate about, is that Jesus' agenda, and trust me, he has one, is to fix it, to fix all of it, everything from top to bottom to remake this entire cosmos into a garden-like world all over again. In fact, to make it even better than it was in the beginning. And Jesus is starting his work in the here and now in his followers. I love that line in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he says, if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has come, the new is gone. I'm sorry, no, the old has gone, the new has come. It's beautiful, this idea of this language of new creation. That's shorthand for this future new heaven and new earth in the language of John in the New Testament. This world that's remade, this entire cosmos that is remade into a beautiful reality. We get a sneak peek, we get a glimpse of that in the here and now. Where? In you and me, in Jesus' followers. What Jesus is doing for you and in you and in me right now, one day he will do for the entire universe. But as you know, this recreation, this remaking of you into the person that God intended in the beginning, it's a process, not a one-time event, right? I mean, it doesn't, not like you get baptized and the next day you walk up and you never sin again, you're just done, right? 
No, it's a process. It's years upon years upon decades upon decades where God is at work in you. Now, if you're thinking, are you on a tangent? What in the world does this have to do with marriage? A lot, I think. For starters, it blows up this whole idea of the one that out there somewhere is your missing half who's made to complete you. And I know people that have flat out been divorced because they thought, I missed it. This isn't the one. This isn't my soulmate. This isn't, listen, that's a whole bunch of baloney. I wish that was true, but it's not. Tim Keller has this book out. Um, he's a pastor from New York City. He has this book out called The Meaning of Marriage. It's basically the same thing as mine, just way better. And um, he makes this great point in it that at some level, every other person on the planet is a bad match for you. It's just that some people are way less of a bad match than all the others. And if you're married, you know there's so much truth in that, huh? It's really fantastic. Go read the book for more information. But it's so great. And when I think of my own marriage, there are, at one level, my wife and I are a perfect fit. I mean, if you know her and you know me, first you're thinking, honey, what were you thinking? But and John Mark, you're thinking, you are a lucky guy, right? But if you know us, I mean, she has strengths where I will never have strengths. She's relational and patient and amazing with people. And then I, in theory, have strengths where she doesn't. I'm on time for stuff. Other than that, I'm not sure what else, but I'm on time for stuff. <laughs> she is not. Let's just say there are other great qualities about her. So on a, on a serious note, I mean, there are ways where you look at us and it's as if God was shaping her from childhood and shaping me from infancy to do life together. And the way that we balance each other out as moms and dads and as neighbors, it's just absolutely incredible. But then there are other areas in our marriage where you look at it and you think, what were the two of you thinking? Right, seriously? I mean, that's, that's not a good match at all. And sometimes it's stupid little stuff, right? My day off, for example. I get one once a week, in theory. So I'm pretty high strung, to say the least. And uh, in order for me to relax, I need a plan. So the night before my day off, I just need, a, I don't like minute by minute, but an hour by hour plan, <laughs> right? Don't judge me for that and for the four of you that have also a mental condition and see a psychologist. I'm really happy that you're here and we can powwow after. So I just need a plan. I need to know what I'm gonna do hour by hour. My wife's idea of a plan, of a day off, is there's no plan at all. A plan is repressive, it's oppression, it's horrific, it's stifling. It's just you wake up in the morning whenever you feel like it and you lounge around and you drink some coffee and you read your Bible a little bit and then you just wander through the day aimless and you just delight in every little surprise and ah! It's just not, not a good combo at all. So. But here's the beauty. Part of this, part of the tension and part of the conflict in my marriage where we're a great fit and where we're not a great fit at all, part of that is a good thing. Like I would go so far as to say it's a really, really, really good thing. Because I think that in the wake of the fall, one more reason is added, a fifth reason, so to speak, for marriage is added, and that is, um, in my language, recreation. This idea of Jesus recreating you to be who you were supposed to be all along. Listen, marriage is a context. In fact, I would argue if you are married, it is the primary context by far for you to become more like Jesus. Whether your marriage is fantastic 
or really rough right now. My guess is that if you're a follower of Jesus, through it all, in particular if your marriage is not easy, you are becoming more and more like the Jesus that you follow. My wife brings out the best in me because she sees who I am, not who I am now, but who I am, who God made me to be, the real me, not the guy that I am tomorrow morning when I wake up, but the guy that God intended me to be and the man that I am becoming. She sees that future, real, true me, and she pushes and she pulls, or maybe better said, she calls me to be that man. She believes in me when I don't believe in myself at all. She believes in God's calling on me when I doubt it to the extreme. She's there, she's un unwavering, she's steady, she's faithful. She brings out the best in me. She also brings out the worst in me. And I mean, to be more precise, it's not her, but living in close proximity with another human being it exposes, some of you are laughing, well done. It exposes uh, what Paul in the New Testament calls the flesh, which is a New Testament way of saying kind of that ugly, nasty part of you where Jesus is still at work, right? You all have this good part of you where you're like, that, that part of you is incredible, that's amazing, keep doing that, you rock at it. And then there's another part of you, everybody's just like, just stop, please, just, that's enough, thank you. We're good, that's great, no more, no moss. Like stop, stop it, that's really hideous, right? And my wife, or not her, but living in proximity with any other human being, in particular with my wife, it exposes that whole side of me. That's why marriage is humbling. You know, before I got married, I thought I was a pretty fantastic guy. <laughs> and then I got married and I realized that I'm a selfish, narcissistic, critical jerk who stands up on the weekend and talks, everybody thinks he's charming and nice because he's a pastor. He's not. Seriously, I'm a perfectionist. I'm really hard on myself more than anybody and on my wife and on people close to me. Nobody, nothing is ever good enough. I'm selfish, I'm me-centered, I'm me first, and I'm critical and the damage that does to my wife who has been so gracious, so faithful, so patient, I mean, we're 12 years into this thing, and uh, honestly, it has not been easy. I know some people have like the great, I'm the pastor, and this is my wife, and we have the picture-perfect marriage. That's not our story at all. We're 12 years in, there have been some low points, but now I would not trade it for the world. Because what we have, first off, what we have been through, but not only that, what we have, what we have fought, tooth and nail for, what God has done. I would not be who I am were it not for my marriage, not just to anybody, but to my wife specifically, to Tammy. She would not be who she is. God has done a work. And now because of the capital, because of the investment that we have into this thing and the bandwidth and the shared solidarity that we have together, I don't care what comes at me or who comes at me, I'm not going anywhere. And there is nowhere on the planet and no one on the planet I would rather call my wife. Because that's what God does. So to recap, friendship gardening, sexuality, family, and then in the wake of the fall, one more is added, recreation. Now here's the problem before we wrap up. Here's the problem. 
That's not why most of us get married, right? I mean, maybe you're getting married for that reason. I don't know. If so, fantastic. I mean, maybe you're just thinking friendship, gardening, we're going to, my guess, that's not why I got married. I mean, I was into all that. We were friends, absolutely. We had a shared calling. We were into sex, yes. Family, we both wanted to be parents one day. And we're sure we wanted to become more like Jesus. But none of those reasons were the reason. I got married to be happy. Like millions upon millions of America, Americans, it sounded romantic, it sounded fun, and I wanted to be happy. That sounds romantic, right? At least innocuous, if not romantic. But here's the problem with that, and here's why that actually that mentality, I would argue, is lethal and dangerous. Happiness is the result of a healthy marriage. It's not the reason for marriage. Read the story. It's not like Adam is miserable and mopey and unhappy in the Garden of Eden and God says, you know, look at you, Adam. You look so sad. You need a lift. I'm going to create Eve. She's going to quench the thirst of your soul. She's going to pick you up. She's going to carry you. She's going to make you happy. Eve, all right, pressure's on. Don't mess up. You got it? All right, go. No, none of that. It's after all of this. It's after marriage. It's after friendship. It's not good for the man to be alone. Gardening, rule, work it. After all of that, he's off quoting poetry and this Twitter patient and romance and all the beautiful stuff that we read. A spouse is not a substitute for God. And nothing is a substitute. Not a career, not fulfillment, not a dream, not an answer to prayer, not success. Nothing. You fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. But a spouse is not a substitute for God. I cringe when I'm at a wedding and the guy, usually it's the guy, not always, but the guy up front, the the groom says, I promise to make you happy. I want to stand up from the back and shout, take it back. (laughs) You can't keep that promise right now on the side of God, family, and friends. Take it back. Because as well-meaning as that is, as nice as that sounds, as romantic as it is, it's impossible. You can't keep that promise, no matter how charming you are, no matter how many numbers you have in your abs. It doesn't matter. You can't, I have one. You can't keep that promise. Nobody can. Because you're not God. Is it any wonder that the number one justification for divorce is, quote, I deserve to be what? Happy. Oh, well, well, you're not happy in your marriage? Oh, case closed. You're done. Have at it. Move on. Give it another shot. I'm sure it'll be better on marriage number three. This is how we think. This is the world that we live in. If you put your faith in your spouse to make you happy or vice versa, it's only a matter of time until they let you down or you let them down. Now you have to get this before you're married. Those of you that aren't there yet, sadly I did not. And it caused my wife so much pain. It caused my marriage so much pain. And by the grace of God, Jesus is doing his healing work. And don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that you won't be married happy in your marriage. A ton of you are. A ton of you are here. And you're thriving. It's fantastic. I am too. Most of the best memories in my life have Tammy and them moving to Portland, starting a church, the day that our first child was born, and our second, and our daughter Sunday. If I were to edit her out of my story, it would be flat and shallow and anemic. But here 
here's what I've learned. I've learned it the hard way, but here's what I've learned over the years. Tammy is Tammy, marriage is marriage, and God is God. Let marriage be for friendship and sexuality and gardening and to become more like Jesus and let God be the well for your soul. And the beauty of this way of living is that if and when happiness does show up on your doorstep, it's icing on the cake. So to wrap up, I just wanna drill down, in particular for those of you who are married, just really fast, drill down, and then I'm gonna close in prayer. Um, What does all of this mean? Well, here's what I think. I think that when it comes to marriage, we make three mistakes. One, we go into it for the wrong reasons, then we ask the wrong questions, then we rate the wrong person. Here's what I mean. We go into it for the wrong reasons, chasing after happiness instead of friendship and gardening and sexuality and family and to become more like Jesus. Then we ask the wrong questions. Am I happy? Are we happy? Does she make me happy? Does he make me happy? Are we the right fit? Are we right for each other? The right questions are, are we friends? In fact, are we best friends? Are we gardeners? Is our marriage about more than our marriage? Is our life about more than our life and what is now called the American dream? Are we lovers? Do we make love to each other a lot and reconnect and refuse and enjoy and express our sexuality with each other? Are we family? Are we raising, if you're mom or dad, sons and daughters to love and follow Jesus? And then, of course, are we becoming more like Jesus? And trust me, the answer to that question is usually heck yes. And then last, we rate the wrong person. So for me, it's not, you know, is Tammy a good friend to me? It's am I a good friend to her? It's not, is her life about more than, you know, the status quo? No, it's, is my life about the kingdom of God? Am I leading her forward deeper into God's heart? It's not, um, do I enjoy sex with her? But does she enjoy sex with me? Is it pleasurable? Is it joy and delight for her? It's not, is she a good mom? It's, am I a good dad? And it's not, is she making me a better person? But it's, am I there day in, day out, through the highs, through the lows, to push, to pull, to call her, to be all that God created her to be. If you go into marriage chasing after the wrong things, asking the wrong questions, and rating the wrong person, then it will set you up for disillusionment at best and divorce at worst, hence the 50-50 divorce rate. But, but, If you go into marriage as a follower of Jesus with a Genesis-shaped worldview, chasing after friendship and gardening and sexuality and family and to become more like Jesus, this is it. I'm signing up to give my life away for the good of another human being day in, day out, and in doing so to become more like Jesus. And asking the right questions, are we friends, are we gardeners, is our life about, and rating the the right person. How am I as a friend? How am I as a gardener? How am I as a lover? How am I as a husband, as a father, as a mother? And am I? Then it will set you up for just a little taste of the Garden of Eden. Let's pray. Go ahead and uh, clear off your lap and stand up, if you would, as we just get ready to move into a time of worship. Thanks for your patience. I know that was a little on the long side. Just stand up and take a deep breath and um, let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and do his work. Maybe close your eyes if you want, maybe open them, I don't care. Um, 
something that I like to do is just to put my hands out. This is just a, a physical posture. It's just a way of kind of saying with your body, Holy Spirit, I mean, this is kind of the posture of when you're ready to receive something, that Holy Spirit, we just want to receive from you. So maybe put your hands out if you want. Let's just take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to come, to speak. I, I pray for healing, for freedom, for your voice. Let's just take a quiet minute and just invite the Holy Spirit to come. God, I pray for this church and for our family of churches spread out across the greater Portland area and for the church of God, not only in Portland, Oregon, but all around the world, particularly in America and the West. I pray that we would stand over against the cultural milieu of our day and age, that we would embody the way of Jesus, that we would look like you, Jesus, and I pray specifically for the marriages, the hundreds of thousands of marriages in the church, the dozens of marriages right in front of me, my own, my own marriage. I pray, Jesus, that you would do such a work of power and healing and repentance and Christ-likeness. I pray that within our lifetime, culture at large would be coming, knocking on the door of the church, calling followers of Jesus for coffee, for dinner, for brunch, to learn what it means to be man and wife. But for that to happen, Jesus, we need you to do your healing, freeing, life-giving work in us. Those of us that are married, would you make us into men of God and women of God to be more like Jesus? Those that are not married yet, we pray that you would carry them to the wedding day with holiness, with patience and contentment, with clarity, with freedom from idolatry. You would get them ready now for the future. And I pray that single, married, divorced, lonely, too many friends and not enough time, that Jesus, you would shape us to be your people. And I pray for this church in Hillsborough in the Sunset Corridor, in the west side of the city. God, I pray that you would fuel them with your Holy Spirit in love and family and marriage and life and business and work and exercise to be your people 24-7. We lean into you, Holy Spirit, now as we worship. 
we just invite you and press into your spirit. Amen.